0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. People from around the world are coming to the U.S. to seek asylum. They come from Ukraine, Afghanistan, Haiti, and in the case of many migrants who arrive in Chicago on buses from Venezuela.
1: Tonight we want to begin with the migrant crisis. The latest city data shows that over 15,000 migrants have been brought to Chicago since August of 2022. More than a dozen buses with South American refugees.
0: Nine more buses of migrants expected in Chicago. The Midwest's largest city receiving at least 27 buses since last Saturday,
2: sometimes without warning. Each bus carrying about 50 migrants.
3: Chicago is set to spend more than $300 million to address this crisis. You heard it
0: there, a crisis. And it is. Many migrants who have arrived in the last year have been forced to sleep in police stations. And their sudden arrival has put a strain on city services. But it wasn't that way when thousands of Ukrainians arrived last year. So why the stark difference there? Well, one Chicago expert says it's a question of federal policy and foreign policy, and that examining those policies could lead to solutions. Juan Gonzalez is a senior fellow at the Great Cities Institute at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and he joins us now. Welcome, Juan.
3: Hi, Sasha. G- glad to be here.
0: Also with us is Laura Mendoza, immigration organizer with the Resurrection Project. That's a group that's worked with Ukrainians and with these buses of migrants. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. So, Juan, I'll start with you. When we say crisis, what do we mean? Is it the conditions that forced folks to flee, Uh, A crisis in not being able to provide resources, immigration policy? Which part is it?
3: Uh, Well, I think, first of all, it's a way of framing the issue. Uh, One of the things that uh, has escaped notice in a lot of the media coverage is that as of May of this year, uh, nearly 30,000 Ukrainian refugees have been approved to arrive in Illinois with an estimated 21,000 in Chicago alone. And most of them have arrived now, and many of them are concentrated not only in the city, but in nearby suburbs. That's far more Mm -hmm. than the 15,000 migrants from the southern border. Yet we've seen no Ukrainians sleeping in police stations, on the streets, or in tents like other migrants. There's been no sensational media reports about the newcomers straining our resources. or or about other ethnic groups complaining that their communities are being ignored. I did an Internet search this morning for news reports on Ukrainian refugees in Chicago. There were 1,100 hits. The same search for stories about Venezuelan migrants in Chicago produced 1.5 million hits. That's 1,400 stories about Venezuelans for every one about the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the Ukrainian stories are about happy endings. Human interest, obstacles overcome, uh, while the many of the, uh, or most, I haven't done, gone, gone through all 1.5 million, obviously, but right. uh, all of the the, uh, the stories that I looked at about the Venezuelans were about the crisis. Uh, I'll give you one little fact that um, one of our researchers at GCI, Rob Peral, found. The Chicago public schools report that between 2021 and 2022, they had an increase of 4,300 students whose main language is either Russian or Ukrainian. Uh, 4,300 students. It's same thing in the suburbs, in the Naperville School District, for example. Mm-hmm. The number of Russian and Ukrainian students doubled from 2021 to 2022, from 123 to two, uh, almost doubled to, to 209. So how is it possible for Chicagoland to quietly integrate 30,000 Ukrainians, but then claim there's no room at the end, and we can't afford to help? half that number of people from Latin America.
0: When Texas Governor Greg Abbott first sent buses of migrants to Chicago from border towns in August of 2022, Mayor Lightfoot held him culpable. Let's listen to a little bit of that. He is manufacturing a human crisis, and it makes no sense to me. There could be a level of coordination and cooperation, but he chooses to do none of those things and instead tries to send human beings not cargo, not freight, but human beings across the country to an uncertain destination. So a a little over six months later, uh, she declared a humanitarian state of emergency. So, Laura, you heard what Juan just said. You're hearing uh, the former mayor there. What do you make of her original framing of it being a a manufactured crisis and then going on to declare a state of emergency?
2: I mean, you you know, uh immigrants have been in the U.S., have been in Chicago for many years. It just, it has looked different, right? For many immigrants, myself included, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant from Mexico. Um, I came to Chicago. Um, I knew where I was gonna, you know, where I was gonna sleep at night. I My dad had already been here a year. So we had like an anchor. We had a family that was gonna support us that uh, was gonna help us kind of navigate that. Um, You know, what we're seeing with a lot of the buses is people coming and not really knowing who's going to be that anchor who's going to provide that service so they are looking to chicago to provide that guidance as to like how do you navigate the city that looks entirely different from what you're used to um and you know when you're getting seven buses a day how do you maintain that how how are you able to do it Mm -hmm. right um and so it, it it does manufacture this crisis, right? Because all of a sudden you're getting an influx of people who are looking for assistance just to help navigate, to help understand what is happening. And then you have um, the impediment of there is no path to a benefit or there is no work permit that's going to, you know, be here within like a month. We're talking months before we heard anything in terms of work permits or months before we, you know, even had TPS, um, so all of these things, I think, put together create this crisis. The big numbers of people, the not having the anchors, the not having a path to be able to have some sort of immigration benefit that could you know, assist in this process, I think, has all created this
0: crisis. And picking up where you left off, Juan, I mean, as you said, uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainians have been resettled here. Uh, tell us more about how you think it's happened just without taking up the news cycle or without the majority of Chicagoans even noticing
3: well a, a large part of it and, and this i agree with the uh, the governor of texas in part that the federal government has not uh, uh, done its uh, p- performed its proper role in this situation you know, the uniting for ukraine funding that congress passed uh makes sure that the ukrainians who do come have a an, an enormous uh, safety net Uh, They are eligible for refugee relocation assistance. They're eligible immediately for work authorizations to receive free health care through Medicaid. They get food subsidies through the SNAP program. They're even eligible for SSI, which in Illinois is a minimum of $904 per month. Uh, uh, That's twice the average salary of Ukrainians in their home country. So they they also get intensive case management. Uh, they get employment services, all paid for through the Biden administration's Uniting for Ukraine program. Yeah. Compare that to the Venezuelans. The, uh, they get a ticket on a bus from Texas to Florida, a spot of concrete or a cot to sleep on, and months and months, as Laura said, waiting for just for the permission to work for a living. So there is enormous disparity in the way that the federal government is handling uh, this crisis uh, uh, be- uh, of those who are coming from Ukraine versus those who are coming from other parts of the world.
0: And the Resurrection Project, Laura, is working with Ukrainians. So tell us in what capacity and what some of the pressing physical and emotional needs are that, for these refugees?
2: Yeah, I mean, so so we actually worked with uh, the Ukrainian community at the beginning when um, the announcement of Uniting for Ukraine and TPS was made. We just we wanted to get information out. Right. That was the biggest thing um, was just letting them know what these programs were, what the requirements were, um, documents that you're going to need to have all of that, um, and so that was a lot of the work that we did at the beginning. Right now, we're not really um, working with Ukrainians, and part of that is because it has become like a self-sufficient program, right? There is funding, there is um, people that are not familiar with it, there is a set process, mm-hmm. and so you know, you're we were able to to kind of um, you know stop working just because it was we were no longer needed, which I think is the goal, right? We want all these and programs.
0: Ukrainian refugees didn't have to sleep in police stations they no. did not why because there
2: was already a set process as to how they were going to enter the US um again i think like the anchor perspective right i think is really important so uh the united for ukraine program um you know that that juan was talking about is it, Part of it is centered around having a sponsor. So somebody in the U.S. that's going to financially support you, that's going to help you with that immigration process. Um, and so I think that's vital because people are arriving here. They know who's going to be here to help them, um, again, navigate the system that's going to help them you know, find housing, all of those things, enroll into school, all of that. They already know the person that they're coming in that's going to be assisting
0: with that process, So we've been talking about how last year the Biden administration created this more streamlined process for uh, bringing Ukrainian refugees here to this country. It's called Uniting for Ukraine. Uh, and it uses the president's authority to grant humanitarian parole. Uh, let's listen to a conversation here. We talked with Adam Bates, who's a, a DC based immigration policy counsel with the International Refugee Assistance Project. Here's what he had to say about this program.
1: There's no question that uh, that Ukrainians were displaced, and that there was a, a huge humanitarian uh, protection need for Ukrainians. And in in fact, in in many ways, um, this Uniting for Ukraine situation uh, program is one of the more one of the smoother and more efficient uh, uh, parole uh, refugee type programs that the U.S. government uh, has devised. So I think it's. A lot of the innovations that they've used to make this program so functional uh, are great, um, and and obviously we don't want to make things worse for Ukrainians. But but the the asymmetry between how easily and smoothly and and uh, quickly uh, Ukrainians are being paroled into the United States uh, stands in in very stark contrast to how the administration is treating uh, Afghans who are in in. Basically, a, a, a very close, closely similar situation, uh-huh. uh, and, and not just Afghans, but it's really, um, it, it really just stands out in terms of uh, the, the glacial pace of refugee resettlement uh, for folks all over the world, not just Afghans.
0: Juan, what's your reaction to what Adam Bates had to say? Yeah, no,
3: I completely agree with Bates. And I would also add, because there's an attempt made to make a distinction between the Ukrainians as war refugees versus the folks who are coming from Latin America, where there are no major wars going on right now. But the United States does not uh, always open its doors uh, to war refugees. Uh, I I want to remind people that the greatest... A uh, uh, death toll of the uh, since World War II occurred in the early 2000s in the Second Congo War, where 5 million people were killed, more than 1.2 million displaced uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. There wasn't any massive program of aid for the Congolese refugees. Uh, they, they, our government is taking in about 10,000 a year of Congolese right now. Then there's a the war in Yemen. Since 2015, 4.5 million people from Yemen have been displaced as a result of Saudi Arabia, U.S. ally, uh, air war against uh, the Yemenis. There's no special U.S. program to admit Yemeni refugees. In fact, I looked at the figures. About 106 Yemenis were admitted between 2021 and 22 Mm. as refugees. So even when it comes to wars, the United States picks the wars. That it wants to accept refugees from, usually because of political considerations of the of the government, and of course, it's easier to get the public to accept European refugees than it is to accept refugees from Congo or from Africa or from the Middle East or from Latin America for obvious reasons.
0: Adam called the the program efficient. Laura, I mean, what could we take away? You think from what works well with this program? And what happens when the force of the federal government is behind something?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, I wanted to to just mention something that Juan was talking about. I think one thing as I, you know, go and talk about immigration, one of the biggest concepts that I try to teach people about is the fact that everything around immigration is up to the discretion. It's always up to the discretion of the administration. Right. So uniting for Ukraine worked effectively because the administration Made the effort mm-hmm. to make a seamless process to remove the barriers that can be there for a lot of programs um, that issue Im- Im- immigration benefits. Um, so you know when when Ukrainian immigrants are coming here and immediately have a work permit, that removes a huge barrier. Right, they're able to immediately start thinking about what kind of employment they're they're going to be. Um, seeking. Um, They're able to start earning that money, building that wealth for their family, building stability for their family. Um, So I think that that, that's important to know that it is up to the discretion of the administration. The administration has the power to create seamless programs that can benefit everybody and that include everyone.
0: And, And to Juan's point about, you know, that people making the distinction about the fact that, you know, Ukrainians are fleeing war. How do we understand the urgency of war versus people fleeing poverty and gang violence or, you know, political persecution, Laura? You know, this is
2: where it gets really tough because you're essentially, you know, pitting people against each other. Like, tell me your story. Like, what's going to be sadder? What's going to, you know... uh, make the most sense for me to back who has more need who has more need it becomes that right and and people get forgotten in that I mean we're seeing it you know as we're talking about new arrivals we've forgotten the 11 million undocumented who continue to live in the U.S. who do not have a path to any sort of legalization they are not able to even get a work permit just like the most basic thing so you be you begin to essentially divide and conquer, right? You divide the immigrant community into groups and who needs what and what, you know, what story is going to be sadder and who's going to, you know, really put their their political weight within certain groups.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And it creates the the chaos that is the immigration system. Juan, you you mentioned um, Venezuelans coming to the U.S., that that's relatively new, right? Sometime in the last, say, three or four years. And there's a reason for that, right? The Venezuelan economy essentially collapsed and the U.S. played a role in it. Can you just tell us more about that?
3: Yes. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that, uh, as Laura said, this dividing of uh, populations and groups is historic in the United States in relationship to immigration. We are all uh, old enough to recall that just a few years ago, Uh, During the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration, the large numbers of migrants were coming from the northern triangle of Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Now, the migration flow has completely shifted. Uh, I looked at the, the, uh, the DHS report. For the first 11 months of the fiscal year of the 2023 20, uh, fiscal year, which ended, it actually ended on September the 30th, but they had the 11 month report. There were 412,000 asylum applications of people who had come into the United States seeking asylum. Half of them were from just three countries Venezuela is the biggest, but Cuba. Is the second biggest. Cubans are the second biggest. Mm -hmm. And Nicaraguans are the fourth biggest. Uh, So three out of the top four countries representing half of all of the asylum uh, requests are from countries that our government is now directly in economic war against. Mm -hmm. Uh, Venezuela is subject to the most massive sanctions the U.S. has imposed on any country in Latin American history. Um, Cuba has been the subject of an embargo for 60 years, <laughs> and Nicaragua as well.
0: So so focusing so, on, on Venezuela, I mean, is there an effort underway to stop the economic sanctions? Like, like what would you think would, would no, help well, ease no, the need actually, for folks to it's leave?
3: Gotten, it's gotten worse, and I think yeah. that's part of the reason why the— because people don't understand. The Venezuelan uh, refugee problem is the biggest in the history of Latin America. Seven million people have left Venezuela in the last few years. The United States is not even bearing the brunt of this issue. Um, uh, Colombia has over two million Venezuelans. Uh, Peru has uh, 1.5 million. Uh, uh, Ecuador, uh, Brazil, Chile—they each have like a, over 400,000 Venezuelans right now. Uh, it's a huge—it's uh, a huge crisis mm. because. The the not only has the government of Venezuela uh, uh, been a, a failure, but then the United States has been systematically trying to drive that government into the ground. The best example, because I think most Americans will recognize, this, is Citgo gas stations. We all see Citgo gas stations. Right. Citgo is a Venezuelan-owned company. It belongs to the Venezuelan government. It produces twenty-four billion dollars in revenues every year. 2.8 billion of it profits. that money is supposed to go to venezuela but the trump administration uh froze the assets thus not allowing any of that money to go to venezuela mm. uh and uh, and the, the the trump and biden administrations have supported the freezing of over a billion dollars in gold reserves that are held in in, England, in 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 britain uh that belong to venezuela right. so we are starving the venezuelan economy and then when the people leave we say, what are they doing here? What? Well, guess what? You're making it impossible for them to stay in their own country.
0: Right, right. Almost out of time. So, so Laura, what, what, what? Let's go back to talking solutions here. I mean, could humanitarian parole or, or sponsorship be extended to other groups, and, and and what would that take?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's 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 certainly what we're calling. We are actually yeah. um, calling the administration to um, give parole to everyone, not just new arrivals, right? Because when we're talking new arrivals, I think we always make the assumption that it's just Venezuelans. And we exclude all the other groups of people who are coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're calling the administration to give parole to everyone, including the 11 million undocumented who have been in the U.S. for years. Um, and that would allow them to obtain a work permit, um, while simultaneously, right, working towards really thinking about how should immigration look like in the U.S., you know, what makes sense, because people should have the right to come into a country and have protections, right, Um, and they should have the right to be here in the U.S. and to contribute if that is what they want. Um, So I think it starts with the parole that the administration has the ability to do without having um, to have the support of Congress, which we know right now is very divided, um, and then continuing to work in like reforming our immigration system.
0: We'll have to leave it there for now. That's Laura Mendoza, who's an immigration organizer with the Resurrection Project, and Juan Gonzalez, who's senior fellow at the Great Cities Institute at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you both so much. Thank you.